and welcome to Kaboom! Goes the Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sarah Moran, Editor-in-Chief of Kaboom.com. When we recorded our DC Comics Rebirth podcast, we simply had too much to say for a single episode. So we broke it into two, and you are about to listen to part two. Meaning, if you missed part one, you'll want to listen to that episode first, as you're going to catch us mid-conversation here. You can find part one of our DC Comics Rebirth podcast, as well as all of our episodes, on our website, on SoundCloud, and on iTunes. Now, without further ado, part two of DC Comics Rebirth with me and Kaboom.com's contributing editor, Matt Morrison. So let me think, what are the other, did we want to talk about, now, okay, the, okay, you definitely take the lead on Batgirl, because um, my biggest sin here is probably that I'm not reading Batgirl. I'm reading Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, because I just kind of was like, well, I'm going to pick one, and that's the one I went with, because um, it has and more characters than I enjoy in it. And it's a valid choice, although, to, to make another note about one of the things that uh, Rebirth has complicated is that uh, we've got Black Canary as a character and Batgirl and the Birds of Prey. She's mostly hanging around Gotham. She's a Gotham girl. She is a supporting character in Green Arrow, where one of the big things they did in Green Arrow is, yay, Green Arrow and Black Canary are dating again. hoo And mm-hmm. she also is part of the new Justice League of America book that they started up, which was, <laughs> which was Batman starting his own Justice League team. And of all the people to make this revelation, Batman being the one to say, we need to have a team of people who are ordinary people who people can see and you know say those are ordinary soup people who went through extraordinary circumstances doing awesome things they can inspire people. Black Canary would not have been my first choice for that team no, since not really. since you know d- don't get me wrong I love Dinah but and she's one of the few people who Rebirth has made her story more complicated than simplified because her background in New 52 was that, and I promise I'll keep this tangent brief, but her background in New 52 was that they introduced her in Birds of Prey, where they said that she had a husband who she was framed for killing and that she was on the run and trying to find proof that she was innocent. And then they brought out Team 7, which was this book that revealed that she was part of this covert operative team along with her husband before the New Age of Heroes started. And they didn't really give much detail of her background, but what eventually came out is that she was a homeless youth on the streets of Gotham City who got adopted by this, you know, martial artist who ran a dojo. He taught her everything that she knew about martial arts. She got picked up by the feds to be part of this covert team. Somewhere along the line, she had experiments done on her that gave her the Canary Cry superpower. Her husband got killed. She got framed for the murder by Amanda Waller. She went on the run and formed an all-girl anti-hero superhero team with some new character called Starling, Poison Ivy, and Katana. And they ran around and have adventures before they said, oh, yeah, and she was friends with Batgirl for a while. Oh, yeah, they crammed a lot in. But then it became frenemies for some reason in the Batgirl book. And then they gave her her own series being written by the same people who were doing the Batgirl book at the time, where they made out this whole thing where in order to stay hidden from Amanda Waller, she wound up becoming a rock star. So, and, yeah. 
and they have never made it clear exactly how famous she is or how publicly well-known her rock star persona is. I mean, she's been recognized by, oh, you're my daughter's favorite singer, so... I agree. It's one of those things that she's as recognizable as the story needs her to be. Exactly. So that's a little wishy-washy. Right. So it's like in Green Arrow, she's apparently, you know, Lady Gaga-level famous, but she's still running around without a mask and beating people up wearing the exact same costume in Birds of Prey, and nobody's noticing anything. In fact, (laughs) I took him to task. I did a review of one of the Birds of Prey books where uh, Dinah goes undercover using, I don't even remember what what they half-assed were... nickname they gave her. It was like, you know, some two-word thing like Battling Birdie or something. Oh, is that when she went to the Fight Club? Yeah, the Fight Club yes. thing. And... Yes, it was something. It was like a clear, an obvious, like, bird, another bird pun. I can't remember what it was either. Yeah, and the person who is trying to find these newbie metahumans and improve their powers is called Blackbird for some reason. Yes. <laughs> only, it, only it turns out that she's basically fattening up the metahuman so she can steal their powers because her only power is stealing other people's powers. And... Yeah, that was that was one that I was like, I don't know how people don't realize that this super famous rock star, yeah, is missing. Because when um, Huntress goes and stays in her apartment, she has she offers for her to sleep on a bunch of band shirts, like merchandise shirts. Yeah, because it's so like it's... I have no, yeah, I don't have furniture. Yeah, because I'm a rock star and I travel. Well, she definitely travels a lot if she's in. You know, Seattle slash Star City. Uh, and then running back to Gotham. Weekend. And then Gotham. And then wherever the heck, yeah, the Justice Batman League of America are... books taking place in. Yeah. But yeah, so um, that's, that's the one bit where it got complicated because I remember being confused just in her, in her uh, solo series before Rebirth happened and going on about, you know, it doesn't make sense for her to be undercover as a rock star using, you know, her real name. Mm-hmm. And the band is called Black Canary. And the band is called Black Canary <laughs> for some reason. And that turns out that the whole thing was set up by her husband, who is not really dead, but somehow got sent forward in time by a being of pure sound who fell in love with Dinah, and he wound up getting sent back in time. And it's like the Weeping Angels, where he set this whole thing up to give Diana, the, you know, give Dinah this cover as a rock star. See, our, com- see, why doesn't any? Why do people complain about comics? I don't understand. It's so easy to jump in when there's exactly. stories like this. Um, and, and I know I promise I keep that divergent tangent brief, but uh, I digress. But yeah, I've I have liked the new Batgirl and the Birds of Prey book. I, mean, I have, I have for the most part. There they, have been some weird things in it, like like, like the that. black the Blackbird storyline. That was sort of just okay on that. Um, I liked what they were doing with Oracle a lot, how, like, that one kid kind of became, like, took over Oracle and how now that's tied in with uh, the calculator, another, They brought like, him back. Yeah, um, who, a character who only hung around because they could make him a foe of, uh, of Oracle. Yeah. Um, oh, but I was going to say, I have one, we were talking about Black Canary here. I have one complaint, really, about the rebirth Black Canary, and it's a stupid one, but... I don't really like her costume. No, and... I agree with you completely. <laughs> I like, and it's not the fishnets. I love the fishnets. That's very iconic for her. And obviously what she was given in the New 52 was ridiculous because that's just not her style yeah, that she's going to have the, this the big armored, armored. Yeah. Yeah. But I just can't, and it's also with the way people draw her. Like, the woman is well endowed, and she's a skilled fighter. So she needs to have something more supportive going on up top. I just... Yeah. The only thing that bothers me. That's it. And I know it's stupid, but it just does. It no, bugs me. No, I, I agree with you completely. In fact, I keep looking at that top and just going, you know, 
it's not going to take much force to snap that one strap around her neck and then not at all i don't i don't see how that doesn't happen when she screams like her her voice itself could probably pop her own top off it's just like i don't know some someday we'll get like her classic costume it works it does work like in what they put her in when then uh when she's in like the animated series you know where they have to make her a little more modest because children are watching you know, those costumes yeah. work. I don't know strap, why they can't. Strap that corset down a little tighter. Yeah, just a bit. It kind of reminds, because it reminds me of, um, you know, so we were talking about Harley Quinn for a, a moment and how she had a complicated time in the New 52 where her solo series was great, but her Suicide Squad was terrible. And I just think of that an initial cover when they showed her new redesign and she had, like, the colored hair and she was also in one of those bodices that, like, there's no way, she no sneezes, way anybody operates. She sneezes or turns... <laughs> she's going to be showing off the goods. Yeah, like she might as well not even be wearing a shirt. Uh, it's ridiculous. But that's just comics for you. And But yeah, we were but talking about... Um, so, okay, so if I'm reading Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, and I'm really enjoying it, how now does the Batgirl series kind of connect to that? Does it connect at all? Is there any? Is there anything I'm like, like, oh, this doesn't make sense because I hadn't been reading Batgirl? No, uh, it hasn't really been connecting to the book that much so far. Uh, oddly enough, it's. I think they were trying to get away from the previous Batgirl Burnside book, uh, which is the pre-52 series, mm -hmm. because they've, they've done two arcs so far. Uh, the first arc, they had uh, Raphael Albuquerque, who was the artist on American Vampire with Scott Snyder mm -hmm. forever and ever. And the whole story there, it was just about Barbara getting away from Gotham, going on sort of a spirit quest, going around Asia, and then running into some guy she used to know and there being a brief flirtation romance thing but her finding out that this guy had gotten in with the wrong end of one of the different tongs and trying to help him out as Batgirl and her also making connections with this uh, Japanese superhero who I'm totally blanking her name but she was like this 90 year old woman who winds up giving Barbara some advice on how to center herself and it's a great story arc. Uh, it's been nominated for an Eisner. So, Ooh. you know, the first book, uh, definitely worth checking out. It's called Beyond Birdside. And the second story that they did, which uh, is also great, it details Barbara coming back to, home to Gotham and finding out that in the time that she's been away, uh, her whole neighborhood has been gentrified. It's now becoming all the big tech companies are moving in, all these young, you know, upper-class professionals are moving in the whole thing is mm -hmm. becoming and she finds out that this one company that is making all these apps that are supposedly helping people are actually kind of hurting people in one way or the other and she finds out that all of these companies are being run by a guy named Ethan Cobblepot and she immediately makes the connection you're related to Oswald Cobblepot and it turns out that yes this guy is a bastard son of the penguin who has nothing to do with his father but Surprise, surprise, the arc is called Son of the Penguin. Turns out, I want revenge on the dad who abandoned me and my mom. But they, it was a brilliant thing because they, and again, I'm, I'm showing my bias as a librarian here. Uh, Hope Larson, who writes the book, she has done a fantastic job of actually doing her homework and trying to make the librarian aspect of Barbara's life uh, plausible. So they're not ignoring everything in the Batgirl Burnside book where 
Barbara was this tech magnet who was forming a startup and doing all this stuff in her apartment with her multicultural class of roommates. That that has been kind of, you know... Pushed aside. That has been pushed aside. Well, that's the other thing I love about the series is that when the Burnside thing took over, they pretty much abandoned all of... Uh, Barbara's friends that Gail Simone gave her when the New 52 Batgirl series started. And the new series has done a great job of bringing those characters back because it was like, hey, Barbara's transgender roommate has completely disappeared from the book, even though they were best friends. And it's like, no, hey, she's back now, and they're still talking and meeting for lunch once in a while. And it's just, you know, so the comparison I, ma I make, and, you know, this isn't so much the way the way it's written, but more the concept of it. It reminds me of the old Stan Lee Spider-Man books, because back in the day when Stan Lee was writing Spider-Man, it was just as much, it wasn't really about Spider-Man, it was about Peter Parker, and mm -hmm. the fact that Peter Parker just happens to be Spider-Man. So, yes, you'll see Barbara as Batgirl fighting all these villains and stopping muggers and using her brains to stop a hacker here and there. Uh, one of my the best cold openings they had in the book was they had this whole scene where she is on a bus on a date in the first and the first three pages of the comic are you know it's like the number two bus on you know 22nd Street Two Face hijacks the train remotely and winds up having this whole you know test thing that Barbara just uses her smarts to hack the system take control of the train and get everybody off of it safely oh nice so but she does this all like on a date uh, while she's on a date and That's great. yeah well she's on a date with the son of the penguin on this one this is before she figures out who he is and you know. yeah no see i definitely i do i really do want to read Batgirl, and so that's i'm probably gonna so yeah either outright but, buy it or jump to the library yeah they balance everything between barbara's social life her life of her friends her you know, love life such as it is, what little, what bit of one she has, her nightlife. And they did a great job of, uh, well, in the first issue, uh, Barbara re-enrolls in grad school to become a librarian. And I love that because a lot of people don't realize that being a librarian, that is a graduate level position. You know, librarians mm -hmm. do more than just shelve books. And, you know, that's the paraprofessional work. The librarians are in charge of developing the collection and organizing programs and coming up with ways to utilize the facility to make it accessible to people. So there's this great scene where Barbara's in a class and the instructor's asking, why do you want to be a librarian? It's like introduction to information technology or something. And somebody says, I like books. And it's like, okay, then you should go work in a bookstore. And, <laughs> and Barbara, you know, raises her hand and says, because I think information is important and we need to help people have a way to access it because yes, that is you know, a librarian's job. I mean, it's not just books. It's about information regardless of the medium. And they show all these other little things that Barbara does. Like she goes to volunteer at a library. Uh, they have a STEM program for young girls and she starts teaching coding to all these girls. And a thing I loved, and I'm using this in my work now, is that they had a link to this uh, MIT website. It's a free resource at MIT. They actually include the real website and said this is a real thing in a little you know, editor's box. Uh, you can go to this website at MIT and it offers you all of this beginning programming stuff for kids who, you know, it's a great That's thing. Great. You know, it's a nice little educational resource, brings you into it and shows Barbara bonding with this little girl who's all yeah, I started doing Raspberry Pi, but now I'm starting to do more HTML stuff on my own. <laughs> 
and it's just throwing out all of these little program names for kids that are aimed at teaching you know kids beginners programming and you know it's a nice little touch it makes it feel more real so you know I, I have harped on that in my reviews just saying as a librarian as an information professional I appreciate that little uh, eye for detail and the fact that it's not just you know Barbara sitting at a desk wearing the glasses glaring at kids and shushing them <laughs> right yeah like it's a they're really giving a more modern understanding of yeah what a librarian does that's really great that she has put that time and effort into it right. um, and as I said they also balance all the aspects of her life so it's you know it's really about Barbara Gordon as a person and not just Batgirl and so far the birds of prey haven't really shown up in it uh, Dick Grayson has shown up a couple of times just you know and basically they're kind of sending up the will they won't they again thing with yeah. him they kind of, they did when he was there um, for like an issue or two in the in the in Batgirl and the Birds of Prey. Um, they did that same thing, which was even funnier because yeah. of course Helena's there, and they Helena and kind of Dick Grayson too as well. Yeah, um, but it was really funny. I liked how they 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 handled that and they handled that uh, uh, maturely as characters. But then obviously you know these characters are being written by somebody. So like even the story itself and though and that series is written by is it it's Julie and Sean. Shauna Benson? Benson, yes. Are they okay? Are they sisters? They are sisters. Okay, I was thinking that they're. I mean, that's just too ironic that their names are the same. It's like they're either sisters or they're married to one another. Could go either way. But yeah, um, where do I? Is it weird that you're as you're talking about uh, Batgirl and how much that is centering on her life? That is making me think about Harley Quinn, the Harley Quinn series. Right. And Never it's a weird thing for me to, to draw a comparison, but that is very much like what they did with the Harley Quinn series. Um, and again, that was really started in the New 52, and it's continued pretty much the same into Rebirth. Um, so I don't need to talk about it very much, but I will always recommend this, as in I think this has been the series that has finally figured out what to do with a character that is so immensely popular, but also so problematic in when you really start to like dive into what makes her tick and what makes her like what her origin is really all about it works great in a cartoon where you don't spend that time that much time thinking about it and you can't really depict it in realistic ways but when you know she just keeps growing and growing in popularity and soon she's starring in a major motion picture like you really got to figure out like okay what are we trying to say with her um, and I think they've done it. They've gotten it right with um, uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and, and Amanda Connors uh, series where she is very much like she has moved out of Gotham. She's living in Coney Island of all places. She has a enormously diverse, crazy cast of characters around her um, as she really like makes a life for herself. And it is it is hilarious. And it is so true to I feel like who she is, where she is such a caring, loving person. But she will kill somebody if if the if she wants to. <laughs> like is she just, you know, she really can't on a dime like change her mind about somebody. But the people that she kills, I mean, when you're reading it, you're like, yeah, they they deserved it. That guy was mean to his dog. I'm glad that she like, you know, blew his brains out or something like that. Which sounds horrible when I'm saying it out loud, but right. within the universe of the Harley Quinn comic, it really it all makes sense. It all works. Okay, let me think. What do we have left here in in Rebirth? Because I know we've got still well, we still haven't really touched on what is probably like your biggest series of Rebirth, the Green Arrow series, and Aquaman. And I almost kind of wonder, since you wrote that great little editorial, do you think we could dovetail these two together, and then that's how we'll sort of wrap up our discussion of Rebirth? I mean, I guess we haven't really touched on Green Lantern, but like we said, I'm not really reading any of the Green Lantern books. 
I haven't really been reading them uh, too much either. I have, I've got the trades at the library, but they keep checking out before I get a chance to. So, say or Flash too. I'm sorry. Actually... Now I'm starting to think of there are definitely other large, uh, impactful characters that we're that we might be skipping over. I, I was actually going to uh, suggest going to Flash and Titans next because I've been reading those and you haven't. Okay. And I think we've covered everything that you've been reading that I haven't with Harley Quinn and uh, Batwoman, which I did read the first issue of Batwoman. Good, but I get the feeling it reads better in a trade, maybe. But you, you well, did you read was it um, Batwoman the because they they did it again. She had like a Batwoman Rebirth issue, and then they had a Batwoman number one. And the Batwoman Rebirth issue was very good, I think, for new readers because it pretty much just like summarizes like how she decided to become Batwoman, which is something that you know Greg Rucka wrote in that Detective Comics run many years ago before the New Fifty Two even happened. Um, but yeah, anyway, no, I, I, I agree. I think, I mean, Batwoman is a character that I just really, honestly, the first thing I, I saw a picture of her first and I was like, wow, she looks really cool. I want to find out who she is. And then I read that series and I just like fell in love with her. So now getting to read now another story of her and having her in Detective Comics so I get to see her on her own and with the team, it's been great. Okay, well, I'm just glancing over the uh, list of all the new 52 titles, seeing what we missed. Uh, Green Lanterns. I didn't dislike what I read of the first two issues of uh, Green Lanterns and Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, but just didn't grab me enough to make the cut as far as what I can get afford to get every month. Uh, Superman we mentioned, Flash we're getting to, uh, Nightwing. I haven't been reading Nightwing. <laughs> me either. Okay. Uh, Harley Quinn covered All-Star Batman. It's Scott Snyder writing Batman. It's good for what it is. And that is one that I almost, because of that, I decided I was going to wait for trade. Yeah. I I got his whole Batman, you know, New 52 series. It was amazing. But I was like, you know what? I know All-Star Batman is going to be quality. I will buy it when it's all collected. Yeah. I will read it then. I, I read the first issue of it, and I actually just read the trade of uh, the first All-Star Batman story with uh, Two-Face, his, 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 his big Two-Face story. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad I waited, because if I was trying to read that every six months, I'd be having to go back and reread all the chapters anyway just to get everything out of it. So having it in one volume really helped. So looking at uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws have absolutely nothing to say about this book. Nope. <laughs> we'll just skip on down, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I can conclude Scott Lobdell has pictures of somebody very high up. That's the only reason why this book is still going. Uh, Superwoman liked it. It ended pretty quickly, but you know Phil Jimenez, love his work. Okay, uh, Suicide Squad. I yeah, I can't say I've had any interest in in I, that series because the only character I really like on that is Harley Quinn, and she's I, already got a great series. I I did read they did uh, John Ostrander who wrote the original Suicide Squad series. Right. He did a special which uh, I read that and I did enjoy it because I you know love John Ostrander. And it was pretty solid, although it did have one line that I loved where it's like he was kind of poking fun at the whole idea of Harley being on Suicide Squad in the first place. Oh, that's kind of funny. Well, the whole mission was that they were supposed to be saving some guy from being assassinated, but doing it in a covert fashion. And he was complaining about how utterly obvious they were being because, well, yeah, and Harley, yeah. Harley, who it is Harley in... You know, her boy shorts and, you know, baby tee outfit saying, do we look like a covert organization to you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And on that note, uh, Deathstroke, I was waiting for the trade on it. Uh, Priest is a great writer. I understand he's been doing good things with it, but 
honestly, there's been so much bad Deathstroke stuff written in the uh, pre-New 52 and New 52 universe. I just wanted to give it a, the trade before I, uh, you know, gave it a shot. The Hellblazer book, uh, Avoid. <laughs> I, you can go and read my review of the first issue, and I literally, bought, you know, I, I, I'm rather proud of the review. I got kind of arty with writing it. I, you know, John Constantine speaking to me from the cover. All right, you know that the writer on this wrote the single worst Hellblazer story in history. You know the artist did work on the Black Canary book that was rife with continuity problems. You know this is going to suck, but you'll never really know until you read it. <laughs> and I read it. And, and yeah, then you read it. It, it, it sucks. It sucks oh, so much. Uh, the Supergirl book. I did read the first issue of the Supergirl book. The main thing, this one I do need to talk about a little bit briefly. Uh, the Supergirl book, their main goal with it seems to have been trying to get it to something kind of like the CW CBS series, but still keeping with everything that's going on with the uh, with the uh, new 52 series that came before oh so they're trying to like yeah tie keep them right in so continuity right so they did bring the deo in only instead of it being run by John Jones who I'm not sure where John is right now uh, he has not shown back up in he's one of those characters that I've always really liked and he's always been, you know, kind of minor in the yeah. whole scheme. Um, but I would wonder him being a Martian and the whole like Dr. Manhattan thing again, I wouldn't be surprised if we, I don't know if he could be one of these captured characters. Here's I think hoping. Tim Drake is definitely not the only one that has been taken. Here's hoping, but uh, yeah, cause we, we miss John. But uh, the Supergirl book, it wasn't bad. They actually did a, a Supergirl-Batgirl team-up story in the Batgirl annual that was very good. But they have had Supergirl start working with the DEO, although John is not running. It's now being run by Cameron Chase, who that probably made like five people go, Yeah, Cameron Chase yeah, is back! Yeah, I'm like, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> she, she's a rather obscure character. She was pretty much hand-in-hand -hand with the DEO. I don't think they ever fully explained her thing, but she kind of spun out of the same time period where Greg Rucka was introducing Sasha Bordeaux into the Batman books. Okay, okay. You know, she, she was an agent who didn't really like superheroes, who was implied might have a superpower, but uh, again, it was kept deliberately vague. And the other big thing is that Kara is still a teenager in this reality, so the DEO wants setting her up with a secret identity as the daughter of the Danvers, so mm -hmm. they did bring in, uh, it's the same character names from uh, the TV series Jeremiah, and I'm totally blanking on the mom's name, but it's the same name. Uh, there's no Alex, there's no Mon-El in this, and the other big change to come out of this is that there's a cyborg Superman, but instead of it being uh, Hank Henshaw, it is Kara's father, Zor-El. Oh, okay. And th there's a whole storyline about how apparently he sacrificed himself he basically did a silver surfer deal with brainiac to you know i will offer myself up to be your servant if you will spare my people only to realize that the sparing involved them being shrunk and put into a you know bottle into the city. bottle yes so now you and you know him becoming more machine than man so you know but he's still determined to make his daughter see that what he did was right and so you have some of the same angst as on the TV show, but not entirely. Okay. 
So there's that. Uh, so like, yeah. So if you're a fan, you can check it out. You might like it. If you're a fan of the TV show, I right. mean. Uh, the Cyborg book. It's the first issue didn't really grab me, but it's being written by John Simper Jr., who wrote the uh, um, classic Spider-Man cartoon back in the '90s. So you know, the writing really? was good. The writing was good. It's just. Uh, Cyborg has never interested me that much as a character, but you know maybe the trade it'll you know jump out more once there's more of a story. I agree. I've liked him on teams. Um, I mean, I'm a fan of the right of both versions of what? Teen Titans. I know that's controversial, liking both of them of the animated Teen Titans. Is what I'm talking about, um, and, and I like that he that he joined the um, uh, the Justice League. I like that another that development that happened over time, and that even happened in the new 52. Even, they made him part of the Justice League. Even though I'm 90% sure that's because the people running DC Comics right now, I'm looking at you, Jeff Johns. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's because we grew up watching the old Superpowers cartoon where Cyborg was part of the Justice League with Firestorm way back in the 80s. Oh, yeah, there you go. That's the good that, that's, that's the best explanation there. And the only other new book uh, that I read of the list, I'm just looking at the list, uh, Blue Beetle. Uh, it's good. I'm glad that we have Ted Cord back. I love the whole concept of how we have the reluctant hero, you know, mentor relationship. Although I did wind up, uh, I think I commented on this in my review that a lot of the story in the first issue and everything so far we've seen of them, it's basically a less psychotic Rick and Morty. Okay, well that's, that's because a really you have weird pick. you have Ted Cord being the wannabe superhero. And, you know, Jaime uh, Reyes, the guy who has this beetle latched onto him, who has all the powers, and Ted being, you know, come on, come on, Jaime, it's going to be great, Jaime, we're going to go out and have adventures, we're going to have a team, we'll be the Blue Beetle together, Blue Beetle for a thousand years! Man, I need that, I need that version now, I need that spoof. <laughs> okay, so that's Blue Beetle. Uh, well, we have the new Teen Titans book, which is being written by Benjamin Percy, who is also the uh, writer on Green Arrow. I have heard good things about it, haven't read it yet, uh, waiting for the trade again, yes, I know I'm terrible. Super <laughs> Sons, we mentioned before, uh, there's a Batman Beyond book now, written by Dan Jurgens, art by Bernard Chang, haven't read it, heard it was good. Justice League of America, by Steve Orlando, same writer who's doing the new Suicide Squad. I was not overly crazy about the first issue, but that's just because the whole concept of it kind of flies in the face of the lineup because as I said before the whole idea is Batman trying to build a team of inspiring heroes and the first person he recruits for it is a trying to reform Killer Frost and then Black Canary and then Lobo. Oh yeah, yeah that, those are definitely logic inspiring. Of, well the logic of Lobo being on the team actually kind of makes sense because it's the whole thing about how Batman freed him from being part of uh, the new Suicide Squad and it's, okay. the whole, you know, it's the whole, you know, yeah, you done me a favor, you know, until I pay my debt to you, whatever I can do. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I can totally see Batman pulling this just on the grounds that if I'm going to be stuck watching him, I'm going to keep him where I can see him. And I, okay. think, I think that actually does cover all of them except for the big two, actually big four. Uh, four. I still have not Yeah, so you want to talk about... So Flash, Flash and Titans. Flash and Titans, briefly. And, right, very and, briefly. Okay, because I did have a point about want to talk about with Flash that relates to this uh, this week's new comics. Okay. Okay, Titans is another book that was in kind of a weird place because they kind of did a soft reboot of it right before Rebirth happened because one of the biggest problems that people had with New 52 and the whole idea of the legacy being destroyed is that a lot of the first-generation 
Titans just got retconned out of existence. I mean, Nightwing was still there. Uh, Roy Harper was still there, but it was really unclear what connection he had to the Titans, apart from some conversation in the first issue of Red Hood and the Outlaws where he was trying to tell Starfire, yeah, you remember Vic, Dick, everybody else. And she's like, yeah, I really don't remember. You want to have sex? Right, because she was this weird... She was was Scott (laughs) Lobdell's living blow-up doll. Yeah, exactly. Which, that did not work well. So they did a whole storyline that Dan Abnett wrote right before Rebirth happened called... uh, Oh, what was it? Titans. I'm totally blanking on the title now. It, was, it, had, it had Titans in it. It was Titans. It had the cover with, you know, Here Lie the Teen Titans. And the whole basic gist of it, you know, whatever the title of it was, I will, you know, remember it in five seconds, I'm sure. But basically the gist of it was that somebody had wound up altering things to cause the Teen Titans, like the original Teen Titans, forget who they were, until they had their memories, you know, checked after they came into contact. So you had Dick Grayson who at that point was still, you know, a secret agent with Spiral, running into a rampaging Amazon and a rampaging Atlantean and going like, why do you two look familiar? And we find out, well, it's Tempest and Donna Troy. And then at the same time, we find out that Roy Harper has been seeing a psychiatrist, who it turns out the psychiatrist knows who he is, and the psychiatrist is Lilith Clay, a.k.a. Omen, a.k.a. the hippie witch psychic chick who was the first person to join the Titans after the original lineup way back in the 60s. And then they bring in all of these other characters from classic Titans, including Harold, uh, Bumblebee. They even brought in uh, Grontok the Cave Boy, of all people. Wow. Yeah, g- going obscure. And not all of them made the jump into uh, the, new, the Rebirth reality, but the first thing after Rebirth happened where Wally West came back in, you know, the original Wally West, he goes and tracks down all of his old friends and says, hey, remember me? And then he winds up touching them and some kind of something happens like, how could we have forgotten our buddy Wally, who used to be on the Titans with us? So the, whole, the whole gang is back together, The right? whole gang is back together, and they did a whole arc with that as well, which uh, also explored how somebody, Dr. Manhattan, has been messing around the timeline and messing around with who is where, uh, because they brought back Abracadabra, and they revealed that he also had his memories altered by something, so he'd forget who he was and how much he hated Wally West. And there has been a lot of weird pathos that they haven't really done much to explore the mystery directly, but they've been doing some issues. They actually had uh, Wally meet the new Superman, well, the new old Superman, and say, wait, you remember the old universe? I remember the old universe. And, you know, Superman going like, Wally, you're here. How? Right, you're alive and exist. Yeah. And then them having to say, okay, well, we don't know what's going on, but, you know, keep me informed as to if you figure it out. And they uh, have been very slowly in Titans expanding the team, getting to introduce all these characters. The last issue uh, finally gave Lilith kind of her own story, which uh, I've always thought that she was a very underrated character. She barely registered during the uh, Marv Wolfman Titans days. She didn't get brought into uh, Teen Titans Go or the Teen Titans... Uh, anime series at all and the crazy part is that the most development that she got in recent memory was that she was part of Dan Jurgen's uh, Teen Titans team back in the 1990s and the only reason he used her was because he wanted to use Raven but Raven was unavailable because they were getting ready to do something with her someplace else in one of the magic books so it's like okay yeah I guess I'll use the original 
hippie, mystic, empath, demon chick that they used <laughs> to have. But uh, Titan's book is very good. It's been, you know, surprisingly accessible to the, you know, readers who have not been reading it before. Well, and it just speaking as like an outsider, because like I said, I don't read these books specifically, but it does seem like one that definitely um, reaches that point of like the reclaiming of a legacy, the um, recognizing that there is a legacy because we have Titans and then we also still have Teen Titans, where like the newer, younger characters, they've even introduced now. I like the fact that the, both of those books are happening at the right. same time. And I just remember Titans Hunt. That was the name of it. Titans Hunt was the name yeah, of the series. There you there. go started this over. So there's that. And th this all spun out of The Flash, which was the first book that also kind of started off the whole thing of, well, we're moving on from DC Rebirth, and you have Barry Allen trying to, you know, going, okay, I have this nephew from Never Reality who I don't remember, but I remember him now. And now apparently the woman who he's the nephew of, he was my sidekick, I kind of have some weird, vague feelings about her, <laughs> and now there's another new, another Wally West, who just got lightning powers, who I'm making into the new Kid Flash. Yeah, how are they handling that with there being two Wallys? Okay, it's the... actually it actually is kind of a brilliant conceit uh, because this does let them have the Wally West who looks like the Wally West on the TV show, although he is mm -hmm. still Iris's nephew rather than Iris's brother, which is the state on the show. Yeah. Uh, what happened is that Iris has two siblings, both of whom named their son after an older relative named Wallace West. So the new Wally, who is apparently joining the new Titans team that Deathstroke is forming, uh, he was the son of Iris's sister, and Iris's brother was Wally's dad, I think. Okay, okay. But anyway, at any rate, she had two siblings. Each of those siblings had a nephew named Wally, so... You know, that's how we're hand-waving this. And the, well, there's a whole other complicated thing, but I mentioned because it is relevant to what's coming up here. It turned out that Wally's birth father was not this guy who she thought was his brother, but actually, yeah, it must have been sister. Okay. Well, anyway, Wally found out that his birth father, you know, the new Wally, discovered that his birth father was the new Reverse Flash. Ooh, that is an interesting development. That's right. kind of like Aqualad finding out his dad's Black Manta, which was an old previous story, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And they're bringing that uh, Aqualad back into reality, too. Ooh, okay. So, yeah, I did hear that. I he, did hear yeah, that. He, he's in the new Teen Titans book, which, yeah, I really need to read that one out. But, so anyway, that, that was a little bit of a revelation there, and that is how Barry wound up finally revealing his identity to the new Wally, because he originally did something where, you know, I'm... Keep you know. I have to keep my secret identity even from you, but I will keep an eye on you. And he'd wound up having to. He wound up demasking because Wally just wound up freaking out because you know it's like this guy was my uncle, and I find out he's this villain, and now I find out he was really my dad, and yeah. it's just all messed up and weird, and you know nothing makes sense anymore, and I feel all alone. And Barry just takes the mask and says, "Wally, you'll never be alone while I have anything to say about it." Oh, so, so it's it's very sweet, it's very touching, and what that led to in the Flash issue that came out this week, uh, Flash 25, is that the reverse Flash is back. And yes, didn't they just kill him in the button? Yes, they did. Uh, but time travel, right? Time, time travel is a real witch like that. And 
Reverse Flash, you can't keep him dead. I mean, they make jokes about that on the TV series, but you honestly cannot keep <laughs> Eobard Thawne down. And the reason I mention this is that this may have some relevance to the bigger mystery of Rebirth, because the whole big thing that happened in this issue is that he abducts Iris West and takes ah. her back to the 25th century. And he leaves a message for Barry that says, meet me where it first began, which Barry goes back to the 25th century, and we find out how Eobard Fawn became the reverse Flash in this reality, which they changed a little bit from the origin they gave him in the post-crisis reality. I don't know exactly how it differed from the pre-crisis, but Mark Wade wrote this great background where Eobard Fawn was the ultimate Flash fanboy. He, you know, grew up in this safe, you know, synthetic, very sterilized future where there were no superheroes, there was no need for them, Everything was nice and safe, and he became a history buff. He fell in love with stories of the Flash for some reason, and he managed to become... He became so obsessive, a plastic surgery to look just like Barry Allen. And he created, recreated the accident that created the Flash and went back in time to meet his hero. Well, he wound up coming up a little short of the point he was aiming for, but he did wind up landing right in the middle of the Flash Museum. At first he was excited because I'm reading all this history that is lost to the, pe to the people of my time. We didn't know about this or this. And then he finds a display with his name on it. And finds out that he is, you know, Eobard Thawne was a man from the 25th century who came back in time and became the Flash's greatest enemy. Huh. At which point he goes completely nuts at the idea that I'm become my hero's worst enemy and start trying to kill him and then realizes... Well, if I kill him, then this will never happen. I love that, like, finding out that you're a villain is what drives you mad to becoming a villain. It does make sort of a twisted sense if you're an obsessive fanboy. Yeah, being obsessed with somebody can clearly take a, take a, dark, take a dark turn there. So but how now does this change to the, what Rebirth is setting up as well, his Well, what we origin. find out in this one is that Barry Allen made an accidental trip to the future, as he does, and he wound up in the 25th century, and he just happens to run into, you know, Eobard Fawn, who is wearing a Flash costume just like him, and he's like, oh, wow, and he pulls me out and says, my name's Eobard Fawn, I am your biggest fan ever, I actually figured out a way to recreate the accident that gave you your powers, and I am, you know, like, kind of an expert on your history here, and I'm trying to become the new Flash here, I just got it, I built a device that picked up, you know, excess, you know, speed force energy, and I followed here, and I found you. And, you know, Barry is at first very, you know, flattered that, well, hey, somebody in the future knows about me. He's trying to keep my legacy going. Nice to know that's going. And he stays in the 25th century for a while, becomes friends with Eobard. And it's all great and wonderful until he realizes that Eobard has been intentionally putting people in danger so he can run in at the last minute and save them. And, oh, yes, the Flash has saved you again. No need to thank me. Get it. Okay. So, I can see how those are kind which, of similar but not. Well, yeah, it does still set up the idea of Eobard being this crazed fanboy, but where it changes is that instead of him jumping into the past and becoming this villain because of something he found out by accident, uh, Barry came forward in time, and you know he basically turned Thawne in for what he was doing, and you know the future is very big on uh, you know it's very progressive as far as well we don't execute people for crimes we try and you know, help you work through your issues. And basically they determined that he, you know, with his gifts for history, the best way he could serve society would be as a teacher. So he wants to becoming a historian and eventually works his way up to becoming curator of the Flash Museum. Which then leads him to him deciding, 
well, you know what? I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to show Barry that I improved, that I became better, that I really did reform myself. Which leads to him making a yellow costume, because all of the evidence said that the Flash's sidekicks always wore yellow costumes, which up until this point they have. Mm -hmm. So he goes back in time and happens to get there just in time to hear Barry giving an inspirational speech to Wally West, you know, the original red-haired Wally West, which pretty much matches up with something secret that he told Eobard that, you know, he thought, you, you, you were only sharing that with me. I'm not special anymore. Senpai yes. has abandoned me. Oh, no. And then that's why. So that's how he becomes. Okay. That's how he becomes Reverse Flash in this one. All right. But here's where the twist came in in this issue, apart from us finding out the new origin. The whole reason why he kidnapped Iris and the whole reason why he goes back to the future and makes Barry chase him back there is because the future has changed. The future that Barry Allen saw when he first met Eobard was a nice, happy, Jetsons-style, you know, flying cars utopia, for the most part. The future Barry runs to chasing after him is this Orwellian police state. Hmm. No explanation for why yet. But he winds up seeing a Flash Museum, runs into it, and Eobard explains, yeah, this is my passion. I didn't build it, but I've certainly, you know, taken you know, expanded it, and he winds up explaining that he used to be the world's greatest expert on the Flash. But when he went back to the past on his last trip, stuff had changed. There was an entirely different Wally West. Iris West wasn't married to him anymore. Iris West didn't even know who Barry Allen was the Flash. Okay, so, so now I can see how this all matches in with the changed history of the New 52. Right. How that, yeah, okay. So now we have... And I just love this conceit of the reverse Flash being the obsessive continuity fanboy who's going like, I don't understand this anymore. Why <laughs> has this changed? changed? Oh, man. And then the comic ends with him in an effort to try and bend some, you know, put some bit of normalcy to what he remembers. And because he is kind of you know, taking the piss out of Barry for not being the heroic ideal he should be. It's like, you're supposed to be this honest, noble, brave hero. You took me to task for putting people at risk because so I could save them and make myself look better. Why, how can you criticize me when you won't tell the woman you love the truth? <laughs> Yanks the mask off at super speed. Oh, so he outs he, he outs He outs buried Iris, and that's where the last issue ended. So... Okay. All right. I'm not sure where this is going, but the whole implication that, you know, one, the past has been changed again, but more importantly, that the reverse Flash may have had his history changed and isn't aware of it, that just kind of fascinates me on one level. Yeah. Because he's yeah. always been kind of immune to, I mean, it's always been kind of a rule in uh, DC Comics in general that speedsters tend to be immune to this kind of shenanigan, and it looks like that is no longer the case. Yeah, we'll have to see where that goes um, and how it keeps tying into this greater rebirth Which mystery. I think leads us finally to Aquaman and Green Arrow. Right, our last two series, which are probably, like, Green Arrow, would you say that's your favorite series of the rebirth? I'm conflicted about Green Arrow in a lot of respects, but I have enjoyed it far more than any Green Arrow book in recent memory. Okay, well, because I was going to say that I think, well, I don't know, I don't, it's hard to pick a favorite, but I really, really enjoy what's happening in Aquaman, and I enjoyed it in the New 52 as well, yeah. which is, we were saying, that this is one that has not changed greatly from New 52 to Rebirth, um, but I am very much enjoying what they've been doing in the Aquaman book. 
Um, I've always really liked, this is funny, so this is one that I like a lot because it's Arthur in, in, in Mera, or Mira, I don't know if we're sure which is the pronunciation. I've always said Mera, but I'm sure we'll find yeah. out when the movie comes out, and then they'll pronounce it, and that's the way it'll be. Um, but I've always really enjoyed them as a team and together, and um, I like how much they've discussed them, like, you know, with them being married, and how, like, oh, well, she could, like, there was this prophecy about her potentially bringing down, like, you know, the apocalypse, basically. Um, I thought that was all fascinating, especially because I really liked the getting to see more about the Atlantean society, how that yeah. all works, how it's structured, how it's old but new. Kind of reminds me of what, like, the Amazons used to be when they used to have, like, right. crazy technology but still be ancient Greek. And it's much the same thing. You know, I mean, it is all this advanced technology, but they still have access to magic. And that appears to be becoming a bigger part of the series as of uh, Aquaman 25. Oh, definitely. Which, you're right, I think you had noted what a great um, jumping on point that is for new readers. So if, like, the idea of Aquaman, you've always been like, I don't know what Aquaman's all about. I think he's kind of a joke, but he's not a joke. Because <laughs> he's super cool, and people never give him credit for how super cool he is. Yeah, um, and they have that whole scene in this, and I loved the artwork. Uh, oh, uh, septic, I can Septic. Uh, I think it's how, how you say his name? Because like, I cannot pronounce his name, but it is beautiful artwork. Right. Uh, Just the whole scene where... And, and the internal monologue as Arvis Fane, I have a friend who uses fear as a weapon. He does not allow himself to be seen. That's what I do now. And yeah. how this whole school of fish just swims out of nowhere and swarms these guys. And how you don't think that would be bad, except you're underwater, you're claustrophobic, you've got all these things crawling over you. Yeah, it would be nuts to have, yeah. And I mean, they've never, I don't understand why, that was always seemed to be like a hard concept for people to get, like, the dude can like, well, you know, control, talk to, I don't know how you want to phrase it, but, like, he kind of has, yes, you know, a, a psychic link to all this sea life. Like, that is immensely powerful. Um, and this new series, I thought, has used it um, very well. But I was trying to think, what else are the things that struck me about this series? Um, the Aqua, well, I liked a lot of how they were having this um, conflict. Well, I mean, it's the conflict that Aquaman represents all the time. Like, is he of the land or is he of the sea? Um, but I like how they explored it in this series where he really is trying to be a political figure in the world. Right. Um, the, the, and comparison, I mean, it comes... the comparison I've made is that it doesn't really read like a superhero book. It is a book where you're reading a political drama like the West Wing House of Cards where it just so happens that you know President Bartlett occasionally throws on a chain shirt and goes off to save the world by beating up pirates. Yeah, it is kind of it's kind of weird, and I mean, I just think back earlier in the it series has that where same like political tone to it. Yeah, and I was I was thinking back earlier in the series, yeah, where you can have Aquaman like in the Oval Office, you know, like speaking with the president, and then like so many issues later, you know, he's like fighting him and and Mara are fighting like the whole U.S. Army <laughs> as they're trying to then escape back to um, Atlantis because now Aquaman is deemed like an enemy. Um, of the country, and it even brings them to blows with Superman. I mean, it's some, it's really some interesting stuff that you just don't think like this fish guy would be involved in, and and now and now they kind of so they built all of that up. You know, they built him up as this this king and leader of his nation, and him trying to get that recognized by the rest of the world, not just seen as this like weird underwater threat. And then in one fell swoop, they did away with all of that, and now that's all like thrown out the window. And I guess not thrown out the window, but. He is no longer 
king, yeah, which he, is a pretty big upheaval he in the storyline. He is this outlaw hero now. And the again, I'm not going to repeat what I said because I did just write an editorial this week comparing uh, Green Arrow 25 and Aquaman 25 and that both of these books do wind up uh, having this massive upheaval where the hero, you know, our character, granting Green Arrow is already an outlaw to begin with, but... You know, they're continuing the whole idea about how they have, you know, been abandoned by their city. They've been abandoned by their people. They have absolutely nothing but the clothes on their backs. But I also, I do have to, in that editorial, I do have to agree that I do think the issue did a disservice to Mara. You're right. She is a very angry character. So the idea of her moping just didn't seem, I don't know. Like, I could see her going... Like, and that's kind of what I expected. I expected her to fly into, like, some crazy rage when she thinks that Arthur um, is killed. Like, when that happens and that's how he's, you know, taken permanently put off the throne is because they, like, kill him in public and everyone thinks he's dead and he's not really dead. Um, I, it's, it's I, did, she... I can kind of justify it a little bit after the fact. It did occur to me rereading the issue after I wrote that that I can sort of justify a little because a couple of months are supposed to have passed between the end of 24 and the start of 25, and how I'm sure maybe at first she probably did start raging and trying to rip away through the circle of thorns that's now enclosing Atlantis. Mm -hmm. But eventually, you know, she probably went through the whole stages of, you know, a very long anger stage, but, you know, she's going through, uh, I think it's anger and then depression, and she's going through, you know, depression stage right now. It's... That, okay, that kind of makes sense. There do, you do get an idea there's been a sense of time because he's had to then establish himself as this, yeah, like protector of the of the underworld of the what the ninth ward. No, it's not yeah. what they're calling it ninth ward. Okay, something like that. Something um, like that. And what was the only other thing from that latest issue? Okay, Dolphin. Yeah. I'm not really familiar with her, and since I'm talking about Arthur and Mara and how they're one of my favorite couples in comics, and now they're really like letting them be a couple. Who the hell is Dolphin now to show up? And they're clearly, I think, trying to position her in some way as in to come between them. See, the weird thing is I looked at Dolphin and, you know, if it weren't for, you know, the white hair and everything else, I would never have made the connection that that character is supposed to be Dolphin. It's just I went looking at her. My first reaction was, what's Black Canary doing down there? <laughs> she did kind of look, yeah, had a bit it's of a look. It's the same like top, that. I swear. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to have to go back and look at that. You're probably right. Um, lazy design. But, no, and I'm in, but she may not, and so I kind of, like, you know, I, I Wikipedia the, the character, and apparently she is, like, has a very complicated history, like every comic book character yeah, does. She, and they're probably not going to adhere to that in this yeah, version, she, I don't she think. She was an original creation, apparently, and then they just introduced her into the uh, Atlantis mythos after the fact because, right. well... It kind of made sense to stick her in there, more sense than Power Girl, of all people. For sure, yeah. But, well, uh, you know. I guess we'll see where that goes. I don't know. I, I trust Dan Abnett. I, you know, he has earned more than enough goodwill at this point between all his work on Titans and all his work on uh, Aquaman for me to trust that, you know, he is going to do right. He is not going to do pathetic drama just for the sake of pathetic drama. That is true. So I mean, I can definitely look at this, and if like they're if Arthur and Arthur and Mara come out stronger on the other on the other end because of this, I'll be I'll be fine. <laughs> and maybe I'm only even looking at the artwork because um, it was just like the um, image at the end, which is kind of like a tease for where the series is going. Right. That just her, like had yeah the the three of them you know kind of lying against each other and 
Yeah, well, it's like Aquaman and Mera are, or Aquaman and Dolphin are like swimming up together, and Mera is like swimming down separately from them. So it's like a distinct like note that like these two are together and this one's alone. But we'll see where that's going. Hopefully, you're right. It's not just relationship drama for the sake of relationship drama. Um, but speaking of relationship drama, I think this oh, kind of works Lordy. as a good segue right on into Green Arrow, and where I actually, well, you had mentioned earlier um, about how the rebirth is now letting. Um, Ollie and Dinah be together, be a couple, which is another one of those in- characters that are always like, they're together, they're not, they're arguing, they, you know, they're not arguing anymore, it's always changing. Um, and this series kind of has those ups and downs for them as well. Which is kind of weird because, and I'm, I'm showing my age with this, it used to be that the main conflict between the two was that Ollie was overly possessive and controlling and she was a free spirit who you know wanted to go off and do her own thing and i always liked that back in the old 70s 80s uh, green arrow comics that i read because well after the fact you know i mean you know, as a kid it was just you know kind of whatever you know with a few ones <laughs> i read back then but i've really come to appreciate those later because they're very much a product of the time but in a weird way i mean everybody talks about how Green Arrow and Black Canary were kind of symbolic of how they were the first couple that you knew were actually having sex off camera. I mean, you couldn't really see Barry or Iris doing anything, but yeah, Ollie and Dinah, they they were going at it. Right, they had that more modern um, relationship for that time, and especially to depict that in some media was a big deal. Right, but the whole thing is that Ollie's, the relationship between the two of them, Ollie was very much the you know, the embodiment of the liberal male conflict back then, and to a degree today, too, not so much in the comic, but the whole thing about how, you know, we have in Western, you know, in America in particular, but, you know, I guess Western culture in general, there's this whole macho expectation of what men are supposed to be, how men are supposed to act, and how, well, yeah, we've been taught most of our lives that we are supposed to live up to this ideal, but intellectually we know well, yeah, but things have changed. We need to make room for the women and, you know, let them have their space and let them do their stuff and everything else. And it's – Ollie is very weird in balancing that dichotomy because he is or was uh, by nature a chivalric character. And I don't mean just because he uses a longbow and <laughs> runs around, dresses Robin Hood, saving people. I mean, you know, he was very much a gentleman. He was very, you know, respectful of people, the whole, you know – in a weird way, he's kind of a compliment of Diana. You know, the whole, I, you know, will kick a guy's ass if I have to, but I'd really rather not. Right. And, and you know, mention a writer who captures this uh, very well, Tom Taylor, who writes the Injustice books. And I know I've, you know, mentioned you before, you don't need to be right reading the Injustice books. But uh, if you like good Black Canary, Green Arrow writing, you want to see how that relationship be handled, go check out Injustice, because he nailed it. Because there's one introduction is like the first issue of year two where they do a flashback story where Hal Jordan, Dinah Lance, and Oliver Queen uh, go into this bar together and this biker you know immediately you know asks Dinah to dance and she's like no I'm with my friends but thank you and I just kind of snickers and immediately biker says like you laughing at me oh I'm sorry was that a laugh I thought it was barely a chuckle and then you know biker immediately starts you know trying to push Ollie around and Dinah says hey I'm the only one who gets to touch him inappropriately you always and you always let your woman fight your battles for you, buddy. I don't let her do anything. She'd kick my ass if I tried. 
Yeah, no, they do have it. I mean, and I'll tell you what, that, that I first became a fan of them um, in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon. That's yes. when I first really became aware of them. And yeah. I was like, they're the coolest pairing ever. Like, why aren't they? Yeah, I'm like, what are their series? And of course, at that time, I don't think their comics were really doing right by them. It's um, complicated, and I'll go into a long rant if I talk about it. Okay. Suffice, so... it, suffice it to say, there's a whole hashtag uh, on my personal website, if you go to mygeekygeekyways.com, uh, you can click on an article link on the right column for Ollie Queen is not a cheating bastard and read <laughs> numerous articles where I took Judd Winnick to task for everything he was doing in Green Arrow at that time, writing Ollie as a womanizing idiot. Right. But this series, not doing that. Right. And it's not to say that, you know, I don't. I think there have been other people for both of them, um, but they have done a very good job with this series about thinking, showing them as complicated, um, complicated individuals, but definitely, like, there is a tie between the two of them. Even uh, though neither of them can really explain why there's a tie between the two of them. No, they really can't. And I was honestly even trying to remember just now, you know, when I was preparing for this podcast, because now they are kind of on the outs. And I'm trying to, trying to remember why. What was the impetus that had them um, go off on one another? And it was right, it was like right before, like, Ollie made his big dramatic reveal where he has recently, like, he has been presumed dead, which is a common theme for Green Arrow. He's often been presumed yeah. dead and then somehow returns from the dead and people are like oh my gosh oliver queen is alive and so we're at that moment in yeah. his story the thing being that uh he he'd been attacked and his death you know they were actually trying to kill him off and then frame him for murdering his secretary and this happened just after he and black canary became an item and what i think broke them up basically it was the whole thing about him going off on his own and not listening to her and trying to do his own thing and, you know, rushing off and being a bullheaded idiot, which is par for the course for Ollie, even when he's being written not stupid. Right. So, but they are, I mean, they are setting it up in a way where, like, yeah, they're having this, they're on the outs now, but they're likely going to be back, um, back together. Now, what else did I want to say about Green? Oh, um, the character of Emmy or Emiko. Now, is she new to Rebirth? She is not new to Rebirth. This is never one of the things where Green Arrow has been gotten complicated. And it's one of my issues with the book, and I don't go into this in the article, but to, to turn the clock back a little bit to New 52, I don't think any book had a more chaotic run in the New 52 than Green Arrow. Because... Before the first issue even hit the stands, the first writer for it, J.T. Kroll, who had been writing Green Arrow before Rebirth, uh, he'd been writing it during the uh, Brightest Day storyline, he quit the book three issues in. So then Dan Jurgens, who was doing the artwork, I think, he had to take over and do a three-issue story arc to fill in the space until uh, Anne Nunsetti took over. I think that's how you say her last name. She wrote Daredevil for a number right. of years. Uh, she took over with issue 7 and wrote it for a couple of years until Jeff Lemire took over with issue 17. And and this is where Emmy got introduced because he wrote this whole story, which it reintroduced the Outsiders. and the whole. But the Outsiders aren't this group that Batman formed. In this case, the Outsiders are this group of clans. And all these clans are tied to classic totem weaponry. And it turns out that Oliver's dad was the leader of the Arrow Clan. And then there was the Axe Clan and the Sword Clan, and how 
Ollie being trapped on the island was facilitated by his dad secretly as part of a plan to make Oliver a worthy heir to take over the clan. And in the middle of all this, they introduce Shadow, only in this case, Shadow, it turns out, was Oliver Queen's lover, and they had a daughter who was Emmy, but Emmy didn't know that she was Oliver and Shadow's daughter. She had actually been kidnapped by this assassin named Kadomo, who Oliver's dad had taken in and kind of mentored, when he thought that Ollie wasn't going to prove to be a worthy heir, and then Kodomo turned on him, thought he killed him, and was going to kill Oliver and take over everything, while raising Emmy as his daughter. And again, it's a great story, but it really didn't fit Green Arrow. And so, that's where where Diggle's coming, because Diggle now is also a character in the Rebirth series. Actually, they introduced Diggle in uh, during the Lemire run. Oh, okay. That that that's the weird thing about the Lemire run is that on the one hand he was trying to do this other stuff, but then suddenly. Oh, and Ollie finally gets back home, and we do a flashback that ties into Batman Zero Year, and we have Ollie getting home, and he meets his mom as Green Arrow, and that is where John Diggle, who is his mom's bodyguard in this reality, finds out about what he's doing and decides to start helping him. Okay, okay. So it was kind of like what they did in the show, although they have gone with a complete 180 with Diggle's background uh, in Rebirth since then. Yes, I know. He's kind of a strange character where he keeps saying that he's his friend, but hardly anything there's, that he's done really no makes me evidence. think he's a friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he does. Yeah, he's barely in the book, and I think he only made like two or three appearances before they did the whole betrayal storyline. I think you're right. So I think they were really just like hinging. We don't know on... what to do with him. So yeah, uh, have him betray mm-hmm. Ollie and run off somewhere. Okay. Right, whatever. and they were just hoping. Well, I'm sure people who are reading this book have watched the Arrow TV show, so they'll have some familiarity some idea with who, who he this is. guy is. Which yeah. is weird because Benjamin Percy has said he is not bringing Felicity back, as long Which as he's is a writing real the book. Yeah, shame I think because, because I don't like what the show did with her, and I'd love to have her in the comic and yeah, maybe be better. Yeah, because I, I did like what the comic did with her, and I really like her better than Fifth uh, Henry Fifth, who is the tech guy who's been helping Ollie out. And yeah, and he's not a bad character by any stretch, but you're right. I don't see any purpose for him to be there and not Felicity or even somebody just like her. Which is weird, because they did have, and I'm totally blanking on the character's name, which lets you know how much impression she made, but uh, like I said, Ollie did have this uh, girl who did the tech support for him before, and they also reintroduced Mia Dearden, who was the second Speedy. Did they? Okay, because that's what I was going to, that was kind of the point that I brought up um, Emmy, is because I enjoy her, because I liked uh, Mia, uh, Mia Dearden, I thought she was a cool character. Um, and just did, the idea of him having a, a young woman as like his partner, I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. Yeah, and I did like what they did with Mia in the when they introduced her into New Fifty Two. The only problem is that you know she has gone by the wayside. She has disappeared into limbo along with Felicity, and I don't think any plans have been made discussing you know her because well. Okay, but so, you're right. I don't I don't see them reintroducing her because I feel like. Um, Emmy serves a very similar purpose. Just to kind of wrap this up now, so Green Arrow definitely, I feel like, has kind of gotten back to the um, the heart of the character, where he is like this, he's like a bleeding heart, and he's always trying to do the right thing, doesn't always work out, especially because he's often blinded, I think, by his own, um, I don't know if you would call it his own privilege, like he doesn't really know how it is for like the other the other half, right? Like he's you know, had this, like, rich upbringing. And no, he's That's, had... That does kind of get to my one issue with the book. And it's not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be, but when it first came out and they announced that 
they're going to have Black Canary becoming his conscience. I was afraid, oh, God, they're going to turn her into the manic pixie dream girl that causes Ollie to have these revelations about how, yes, I need to work to help the poor. And it's like, yeah. you were already working to help the poor before, you idiot. Yeah, you've always been about that. Yeah, it doesn't mean you always do it right, but you've always that's always been his driving mission, is to use his means, I think, to help his city. That really has been... And yeah, I can, you know, they have made a little bit more about it being Ollie being driven by, you know, the nobleman attitude of uh, noblesse oblige, you know, noble obligation. And, you know, that has been a good conflict, and I have liked them bringing that up because Dinah has pointed out that he's more concerned with trying to, you know, forget about your fortune, forget about your family name. We can, you know, go live in the forest and have, you know, weird, freaky tree sex. <laughs> Okay, that never actually got said, but it was pretty heavily implied. It was implied, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that they don't, yeah, he doesn't, because what they're doing now, right, in this, in this story is that he's so worried about clearing his name, about clearing, like, he's more worried about Oliver Queen than he really is about being Green Arrow and doing what Green Arrow does. But he is approaching it from the angle of how it's not just about my name, it's about who I am, because everything mm -hmm. he's been doing has been about the journey of self-discovery, and, you know, admittedly, Dinah is kind of pushing him toward, you know, she sees what he can be, and it's something that came up in the comics before, about how she fell in love with the good guy who's trying to get out, and how she sees the good in him, and how he is trying to do good, and is trying to be better. But, you know, Dinah is a combative, commanding person, just same as him, so she's like, you know, you know, I love you, you idiot, why won't you do what I tell you? <laughs> Yeah, I, have, I mean, I have. I've really enjoyed having them together and fighting with each other, and, and when they're not fighting, it's all good. It's all good. But that that is ultimately, and I don't think I mentioned this when I compared Aquaman and Green Arrow, although I made the point about how, you know, they, they are kind of approaching the same problem for different things. And my biggest problem with Green Arrow as a title is that I like the way that Benjamin Percy writes the characters. The interactions between the characters are perfect. He has great stories. Uh, what he did to redefine Roy Harper's origin should have been done five years ago in Red Hood and the Outlaws. It finally gave us the story that we needed. I love the way he writes the characters, but I don't really like the stories he's telling with them, if that makes sense. Well, I kind of, okay, I see that. Because I, he's I... trying to twist the characters to fit the story he wants to tell. Mm -hmm. And when he's just letting the characters be the characters and interact with each other, it's a great book. When he's trying to twist and hammer things so that Ollie suddenly has a revelation about how, no, men with masks should not be influencing the destiny of the city. So that's why I have to go before the people as Oliver Queen and show them that the system works even though I know the system is corrupted and rigged against me. Yeah, no, Ollie's could... not that stupid. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. Even if, no. even though he does eventually decide, well, gee, I'll go on the lam and find the proof that I'm being framed after jumping bail, because yeah. the system works. <laughs> exactly. Though I was gonna say I did like. Um, this is a stupid point to bring up, but I thought it was clever that Seattle becomes Star City. I thought that was more clever, clever. Excuse me, more clever than Starling City becoming Star City. Because that just seemed like a typo. It's got um, a bird name. It's got, you know, yeah, the canary and they got the stallings. The kids won't know it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I did, I liked this. And I, I liked how it all came together. And 
it was funny in that most recent issue 25 i think it's like the newscaster woman who um ollie is kind of like befriended yeah. she even talks about the city becoming like a no man's land and i was like oh yeah i've had that feeling for the past like this whole rise of star city arc has felt very much to me like no man's land green yeah. arrows no man's land exactly i'm like okay i'm, I'm kind of down for this though I'm down for where it's going. So, yeah, you know, I do like the book. I do criticize the directions they've taken with some of the characters and, you know, Dinah being Manic Pixie, you know, punk girl for part of it. And But it hasn't become as bad as I thought it was going to be, which I know that sounds like damning with faint praise. But it's just like, even though I disapprove of everything in issue 25 that was done to try and get it to the point where we're now going to have Ollie hitting the road and trying to do all these team-up stories with all these characters who he has not interacted with in forever. Like, uh, next week we're supposed to be getting a Flash Green Arrow team-up. Yeah, and, like, I can I can dig that. I mean, I did see that little tease at the end, like, shows, yes, all the people that he's going to go and on adventures with. Which I thought there was one group that was, like, it was, like, him, and it was Harley. Harley, was Batgirl, Nightwing. Nightwing, yes. Apparently, I was, like... I was really intrigued. I'm like, what is this group doing together? Apparently that's got something to do with an upcoming title called Gotham Underground, where Nightwing is going to have to lead a team of heroes who are going to be fighting against some new power structure in Gotham City. In the way, I'm guessing this is going to be in the wake of the big Batman war that they've been hinting at for the last couple of issues in Detective. Yeah. So, huh. you know, Bruce is probably going to disappear and be considered dead for a while. Nightwing is going to have to take over... And he's probably going to take everybody else who has an individual solo titles. So they can do big crossovers between Harley Quinn and Batgirl and everything else. Well, that'll be kind of cool. I don't know. I mean, I'm definitely excited for where, for where Rebirth, I should say as a whole, if we're going to wrap this up, as a whole, yep. where Rebirth is going. I'm excited for the overarching mystery. Each of the series that I've been reading, I'm excited where they're going. Um, Loving it. Yeah, I mean, I really don't, we really, like, I feel like we've kind of exhausted ourselves on Rebirth, but, like, has it done what it's set to do? It definitely has, because it's made us so excited that we've talked about uh, for these over two hours for over two hours, yeah. I'm certainly going to be splitting this episode it, it into has two definitely revitalized. <laughs> it has definitely revitalized interest in the characters and the line and the DC Universe in general. I think if you look at our site and see how... I mean, every week, practically, half the books we're, we're picking up and reading are DC. Oh, I know. Our, our bias is showing hardcore. Like, <laughs> it's all about DC right now. And I think the only Marvel book that I'm I, – I can't even say I regularly read it or I regularly buy it um, is Captain Marvel. And that's because I like that character. And so I like checking in with her. But, like, there's so much bonkers stuff going over at Marvel. I don't even care that much. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. So, guys, DC Rebirth – it's a success, I think, a year later. I wish it have had some figures on the pricing. I don't know. Maybe I could post that online um, when I publish these, this, this podcast. But I have to say, I, I, as far as I'm aware, I think it's doing well for them financially as well. So really... I believe like, they have over 50% of the market right now. So, oh, yeah. Then, checked, so yes, definitely. Rebirth. It's fallen. I'm really enjoying it. Um, and there are, like, I'm at a point now where I feel like I have to limit myself from the series, like I was saying, Trinity was one, Batgirl is another one that I think if money wasn't an issue, yeah, I would, I would be, I would be reading all of these. No argument here. All right, well, we will just sign off then um, from our super extended, likely two-parter episode of DC Rebirth a year later. Uh, my name is Sarah Moran. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah This Is, 
And my co-host for today has been... Matt Morrison. You can follow me on Twitter at GeekyGeekyWays. And of course, always check in at Kaboom.com. That is five O's and no apologies, where we are weekly reviewing and ranting and raving about all sorts of things, comics most especially, but also movies and TV and cosplay and, and what else you have out there that you like. So that is us for this week. We will catch you next time.